0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akil Amar, as always. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Akil with his customary lengthy introduction. Um, uh, we have
1: so much to do today, and it's a special episode, so now you're making me take up more time when I didn't want to,
0: but there we go. <laughs> yes. And, of course, it is a special episode because we're, we're so happy to welcome back uh, Senator Gary Hart, who was with us two episodes ago. Um, And now, amidst the snowstorm on the East Coast, um, the Colorado man is the one who's actually thought out. But uh, welcome back, Senator Hart. Great pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so let's get right into it. Um, This week, uh, as we record, the uh, newspapers are abuzz with uh, the recent announcement by uh, Justice Stephen Breyer that he would be uh, stepping down from... uh, his position as associate justice of the Supreme Court, and of course, we have a panel today that's uniquely qualified to discuss this because Akil clerked for uh, Judge at the time, Breyer, um, and has you know remained in contact with him over the years. And Senator Hart um, served in the Senate at a time when I believe uh, Justice Breyer also served in the Senate. Um, on uh, was it uh, the staff of? Uh, the judiciary, was, or of Ted Kennedy? Yes, he was. I think
2: general counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. But I, I failed to check the years. But I think there was overlap.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, did you have interaction with with him at that time, or later? Did you have an impression of his work um, over over time? At a distance,
2: uh, I, I don't know that I ever had a conversation with him certainly not in the Senate years, but I've uh, racked my brain since then, after he went on the court, as to whether our paths may may have crossed, and I can't remember, I don't believe so. My impression, therefore, is secondhand, but um, he appeared to me to be the essence of a Supreme Court justice, and in in terms not only of his intellect, but of his demeanor, of his um, personality. uh, He exhibited almost all the qualities you would want in a Supreme Court justice, fairness, balance, and all the rest of it. Plus, as I said, a a keen intellect,
1: and um, he will be remembered for all those things. Andy, if I could jump in, because I'm a kind of missing link, common denominator, um, in in, in a way, uh, uh, in, uh, in the following respect, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about Breyer, building on what Gary just said. So, um, we have a lot of members of our, our audience, all, all sorts we, we're trying to reach in this podcast, liberals and conservatives, um, oldsters and, um, and uh, rising stars. So, so some of the people who listen to this podcast actually are um, uh, pre-law uh, kids in, in college and, and law students. So I'm going to give them some advice um, based on my own uh, years as a law student. I'm really I mean, it's very interesting. Now they look back on my life that at an early age, I actually think I spotted um, the, the more senior people who I actually thought were the ones to watch. Um, so I told the story in a, a two weeks ago about um, spotting Gary Hart at an, uh, when when I was still in law school and, and co-founding Yale um, Students for, for Gary Hart in in, in 1984. In fact, I remember calling the New Haven Register once to announce this um, thing, and 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 I and I uh, so I called the person. And the person said, "What's a Gary Hart?" <laughs> so, so, but I also applied for clerkships, and I applied actually in general to younger folks because I wanted to um, have as a mentor someone who would be around for for a, a long time. I applied to Steve Breyer, um, and I encountered him basically at the same time that I encountered. Um, Gary Hart kind of um, hearing about these people from my own teachers, uh, Guido Calabresi telling me about Gary Hart, um, Peter Shuck assigning me the uh, casebook co-edited by Steve Breyer. I also applied um, at that time to Anthony Kennedy, who was um, out in California on uh, a, a lower court, a court of appeals. I only applied to about 10 people, but I think it's interesting that I applied to uh, um, uh, a Breyer, um, a Democrat, um, in in Boston, and Anthony Kennedy, a, a Republican, in California, and when they both got to the Supreme Court, I think each one had a certain um, bipartisanship that Gary. And now this, I'm segueing to some other themes of Gary uh, in, his, in his most recent comment about balance. So. Steve Breyer gets his position. He's Ted Kennedy's right hand, as you just heard. Uh, Kennedy was chair of the Judiciary Committee. And yet he gets actually nominated because the Republicans in the Senate liked him um, uniquely and because he didn't freeze them out, because he worked with them, because Senator Kennedy actually told him on the first day, if we can get something through by 51, just on our side, okay, but if we can actually make some adjustments and broaden it out and, and, and accommodate our, our colleagues on the other side of the aisle and get 80 rather than 51. Let's do that even if we have to make some adjustments. I prefer 80 with a bipartisan buy-in than 51 just um, our way because uh, what goes around comes around and they're going to be in the majority at some point and it's a small group and I respect them and that's what it means to be a senator. And Gary talked about that two weeks ago, how there was more of that Back then, he worked with Republicans. They respected him. I, I quoted Barry Goldwater, Mr. Republican, um, on Gary Hart. Well, that's actually Steve Breyer, even though he was never a senator, he's a creature of a Senate, but the creature of a Senate in a certain era. And the backstory, what, very widely known, is that people like Bob Dole, Mr. Republican, and Orrin Hatch, Mr. Republican, I think the longest serving Republican senator in history, at least at, at, at a certain point living, uh, maybe even ever, they went to, Senate, to President Clinton and said, Listen, you can pick Mario Cuomo if you want. You can pick anyone you want. It's your call. But you're going to have a fight. Contrarywise, if you pick Steve Breyer, we, in effect, they told him, we'll guarantee you 90 votes. And Clinton didn't want to fight. Now, Anthony Kennedy, very similar in that. He was nominated by a Republican president, Ronald Reagan, but confirmed by a Democratic Senate, a Senate that had blocked Bork, Bork, Bork. On the current Supreme Court, only one justice actually was nominated by a president of one party and confirmed by a Senate of the other party. That's Clarence Thomas, and oh, it was ugly. All the other justices, the other eight current justices, are three Democrats, appoint registered Democrats, nominated by a Democratic president, and confirmed by a Democrat-controlled Senate. That's Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and five Republicans. All of them, except Thomas, who are registered Republicans, nominated by a Republican president, confirmed by a Republican Senate. So Kennedy was interesting in that I think he was a Republican that Democrats could work with. Uh, that's what um, Larry Tribe announced um, very early on, and. In prominent cases. Yeah, he often voted with conservatives, of course, um, but, um, and I sometimes really, um, he broke my heart on in like Shelby County inv- voting to invalidate the Voting Rights Act. I think he was on the wrong side of the Affordable Care Act case. Um, sometimes I was with the conservatives um, and, and Republicans, as we talked about in Floyd Abrams with Citizens United, but Kennedy actually. In four landmark opinions about gay rights actually joined the, the, the Democratic appointees, the liberals in Romer versus Lawrence versus Texas, Romer versus Evans, um, uh, Windsor and Obergefell, and in other cases as well. So Breyer was a Democrat that Republicans could work with both before he got on the court um, and on the court. Kennedy was uh, a Republican confirmed by a democratic Senate, even before he got on the court and continued to do that. Gary just had a a word or two and I've been long-winded. I apologize. I'm going to let him get back in, but but he used the word like (laughs) balance. Okay. And, 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 and balance it. I'm I'm giving you part of what he meant by that and connecting it to what he said two weeks ago about how the Senate was a different place back then.
0: Yes, absolutely. Now, Gary. um, So Along the lines of this, uh, you know, your your characterization of Stephen Breyer as nearly an ideal uh, justice in terms of his personal qualities. Um, so you were in the Senate for the confirmations of Stevens, John Paul Stevens, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, William Rehnquist, and Antonin Scalia. Um, and then I think you left right before Robert Bork and Anthony Kennedy in 1987. Yes. So during that time as a senator, how did you think about confirmations? Did did you think of it as a a very partisan process uh, in necessity, or did you look for the sort of personal qualities in the justice that weren't necessarily specific to party that you described earlier?
2: Well, let me talk about the atmosphere, because I served two terms, one in the 1970s, the other in the 1980s. And they were, di- they were dramatically different senates. And um, it was in the 80s, the Reagan election, and the beginning of confrontation in the House with then Speaker Newt Gingrich, and the arrival, we must say, on our shores of Rupert Murdoch and the emergence of partisan media, uh, which virtually did not exist in the 70s. So it's, it was back-to-back two very, very different eras. And in the 70s, there was much more bipartisanship. There was uh, much less kind of doctrinaire uh, organization of the Republican caucus in both the House and the Senate. Uh, individual members, senators and House members were much freer to make their own decisions. And and there was very much less party discipline that began to emerge in the in the 80s and then has has grown and exploded since then. And so I'd almost have to answer that question um, two different ways. The confirmation hearings and votes in the 70s, and I can't, <clears throat> I'm desperate trying to remember which ones came up in the 70s of those you listed and those that came up in the
0: 80s. So it was just Stevens um, in the 70s was nominated by Gerald Ford and the others were all nominated by President Reagan.
2: right. And I think there was an effort. <clears throat> Again, I'm I, I'm having to recreate an atmosphere three or four decades since then, before then, before now. Um, I think there was still the remnants of bipartisanship in the Senate of the '80s, but it it really began to harden and crystallize. And I don't remember, (laughs) you're going to hear this a lot about memory. Um, I don't remember, I I don't believe I voted for uh, Justice Scalia, but I do believe I voted for the others. I'd have to go back over my own record. And I think that was true of quite a number of, I wouldn't, I don't like terms like centrist, but um, people who tried to make thoughtful judgments over and beyond partisanship and what was best for the country. Uh, I know my own attitude in those days was still that a president should get, bar, barring some extraordinary circumstance, should get the Supreme Court justice, justices that he or she he uh, favored. That was part of the deal of the election. And uh, when the people have spoken, and pretty dramatically so, in a presidential election, that gives the president a lot of leeway uh, to place people in positions of authority, including in the court.
0: Well, I know you vote. I I can tell you you voted for Antonin Scalia because he was confirmed 98 to zero. Yes, (laughs)
2: that's what,
1: that's, that I do remember.
0: (laughs) Yes, so um,
1: uh, with Scalia, part of it is because it was part of what in baseball would be a double switch. Berger stepped down. Rehnquist was moved from associate to chief. And then that created a vacancy for associate that Scalia filled, and just like you know Andy is a, is a huge baseball fan, you know just like the double uh, switch in, in in baseball, or now I'm going to uh, switch the metaphor, of flooding the zone. It's very hard for a senator to go after both. So um, the Democratic caucus basically decided that they would uh, concentrate their fire on Rehnquist as chief, and um, Scalia sort of slips in. Um, uh, in, 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 uh, behind, so so Rehnquist generated more negative votes, but actually the Democrats could go after two simultaneously. It was thought to be too aggressive. Now, Gary mentioned the changing media environment um, that was emerging with um, the advent of, of Rupert Murdoch and what will become Fox News. He mentioned the arrival of uh, Newt Gingrich, who I think was uh, has been a, a distinctly polarizing and destructive force in American politics Um, I'm going to actually identify another two larger structural features that are um, at play. Um, Basically, the massive realignment um, of American politics, um, which uh, are are reverberations, frankly, of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights uh, Act of the 1960s, um, uh, in which basically conservative um Southerners who were part of the Democratic Party. We talked about Robert Byrd before, um, but conservative and, and, and this process began even as early as nineteen forty eight with the Dixiecrats. Um but conservative Democrats um uh, after Civil Rights uh, Act and, and vote of 64 and Voting Rights Act of 65, Fair Housing Act of 68, and this is about when Gary's coming on the political scene because he's going to um, uh, be McGovern's man in, in 72, Southern Democrats who are conservative joined the Republican Party that pushes the Democratic Party to the left, that pushes the Republican Party to the right, and they push out of the Republican Party the so-called um, Rockefeller Republicans, Northern Republicans, Liberal Republicans, um, You know, people like Lincoln Chaffee or Arlen Specter. Um, uh, uh, um, there, there, there are many others. Um, and, and we've already talked about a couple of them. So there, there aren't, um, in, in the new era, so many Northern moderate or or liberal Republicans, like Gerald Ford, who's from Michigan, who appoints John Paul Stevens, who's from uh, Chicago. He's a northern Republican um, who eventually actually leaves to give a Democratic president um, um, the the slot to fill, um, as did David Souter, another northern Republican um, uh, from from New Hampshire. So the realignment um, happens, and this is the second point, in both the Congress and the court. In the Congress today, there are no Robert Byrds and there are are, are no Jacob Javitses and, and the like, um, Jim Jeffordses. That means the most conservative Democrat today, Joe Manchin, still is basically on most issues to the left of the most liberal Republican, Susan Collins. Wow. Total um, um, uh, realignment. And that's also true for the first time now in the um last several years on the Supreme Court, there's total party alignment in which um all the Democrats are liberals, and all the liberals are Democrats. All the conservatives are Republicans, and all the Republicans are conservative. That wasn't true back in the day when Byron White, a Democratic appointee by Jack Kennedy, often voted with with conservatives. People like John Paul Stevens and and David Souter, you know, at the end of their careers, routinely voted with the liberals. So did Harry Blackman, another Northern Republican from Minnesota. So I've given you a geographic point about the South and the North, a party point. And a point actually about both the Senate and the and the House, Congress and the Court.
0: So, really, what you're saying, I think, uh, or one of the things you're identifying is that the Court is tracking the parties in the sense that the degree to which the parties themselves are fractured can cause uh, fractures in the, or not necessarily fractures, but um, diversity of of, uh, ideological diversity within the Court. And actually, I think you can still see that in it, but in a different way. Because you could say that the Republican Party is fractured between, uh, you know, the hard right and the right, right? So that, no, seriously, I mean, the Trump right. You know, the hard,
1: hard right, right and the hard right. right. The,
0: <laughs> well, well, no, but it's true. I mean, you know, you have the Trump right, you know, the, the crazy right, and then and then the more traditional right. And you can see that almost on the court, even though it's not, not doesn't correspond to who appointed them. But, you know, you, you're starting to see Justices Roberts and Kavanaugh um, and maybe Barrett, who knows, as, as a possibly a different wing of the court from Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas. Um, so, so even there... As the Republican Party, it's just a different fracture within the Republican Party than what you had identified earlier. And the other yeah, thing just, I would just say... Just
1: like on, on the other side, you know, Sotomayor is closer, truthfully, to the AOC wing of the party, and, and Breyer closer to the Biden wing of the party.
0: But here's what I would say is different. The, the Republican Party of Senator Hart's era had some overlap with the Democratic Party. So, in other words, you know, Jacob Javits could have been a Republican. Low Weicker, I mean, could have, de- could have been a could have could have been a Democrat. Um, <laughs> Low Weicker actually was both parties, you know, at, at one time or another. Um and Arlen Specter. Correct. So, but that is not going to happen now, right? In other words, you know, Mitt Romney is not going to become a Democrat. You know, so. Well,
1: I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, if they keep moving and moving and moving, maybe we'll be getting, but, but just one thing on, on Spectre, because you're a Churchill man, um, Andy, Andy might actually write a book about Churchill at some point, Gary, um, just uh, in case you're interested, and, and, and Churchill, of course, actually went from the conservatives to kind of uh, the liberals and then back, and he, he said, you know, anyone can rat but only I can re-rat. Um, actually began as a Democrat, became a Republican, and then at the end went back to the Democrats. Very interesting.
0: Yes. Um, okay. So, uh, but in terms of, just to wind up here on, on Justice Breyer uh, and this notion of confirmation, Gary, um, you, as a senator, okay, you weren't on the Judiciary Committee, but you still had to vote about, about, on these confirmations, and you know, there was some party influence as we see you voted I, I checked you voted against uh the confirmation of of Rehnquist for chief justice, um along with i think thirty seven other of your of your party um but or maybe it wasn't all of your party but what what other than just sort of party dictates? Did you consider in your various confirmation votes what was the your thought about the duty of a senator when he voted for the for the confirmation of a ju- of a justice for the Supreme Court? How did you think about it?
2: Well, that's an open-ended question. I, as I've already indicated, I had a bias toward respect for a president's choice. Mm-hmm. I started out with that. I didn't, unlike today, uh, if if I didn't like the president, I didn't look for ways to poke him in the eye. And philosophically, I was pretty far away from Ronald Reagan. But as I said before, getting elected president gives you advantage and leeway in your selection of appointees to the judiciary. Now that has gone, I think to an extreme on the Republican side, but that's one person's opinion. Um, All of the qualities that, that we talked about thoughtfulness, uh, willingness to listen, uh, not be doctrinaire and predictable. There are, some there are two or three justices on the court now and in, and maybe more uh whose votes are being counted almost before arguments are heard simply because of statements they have made speeches they have given and so forth uh i if 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 the record of a justice or an appointee is so Set in stone that that individual can't respond to counter arguments, then I would probably be inclined to vote against them, just because that is not the nature of a uh, high, high, the highest level judiciary appointment.
0: Would you, um, in the confirmation process, did you consult at all with experts like someone like Akil you know, to get their opinion on justice, uh, potential justice, or was it more a political decision for you in that sense?
2: No, it wasn't. I, what I'm trying to say yes. is, I I tried to stay away from politics mm-hmm. as much as I could. It is, but that was in an era when the makeup the the ideological makeup of an appointee was uh, broader than it is today. Today, Republican presidents right. are appointing judges, not just at the Supreme Court, but up and down the line, in effect, for rewarding them for votes on ideological issues, abortion and so mm-hmm. forth and so on. But theres it's not just votes. It's speeches. It's... Uh, are you a regular at the Federalist Society conferences? Do you say what um, the audience wants to hear? Are you predictable? And I don't think a, a, I don't think cases that come before the high courts ought to be predictable. They they, they get to the Supreme Court because they invite new creative thinking. Whether they get it or not is a is a separate
1: issue. Mm. And and speaking of the Federal Society, if we were talking with a a senator, current or former, with stronger ties to the Federal Federal Society, here's what he or she might say. This is in, in the spirit of being fair and balanced. They'd say, "Well, you guys, you've talked about Newt Gingrich, and you've talked about Rupert Murdoch, and you've talked about Fox." News and, and you've talked um, uh, about, you know, folks on the, the right who have started all this. Um, here's what you guys need to, to hear. Actually, Bork changed things as well, the Bork confirmation hearings, and it was you guys on the left. Who actually um, uh, created in the modern era the first uh, really kind of polarizing, contentious uh, process? Um, um, we could go back to Thurgood Marshall, and some on the left would point to that. But but Bork was maybe you know yet another one of these um, uh, inflection points, along with Gingrich. Um, along with um, uh, um, Rupert Murdoch and, and Fox News that, that we should probably um, mention, because c- folks in the Federalist Society would say, you Democrats started it when you borked Bork. Bork was my teacher at, um, at Yale. I don't know, uh, Gary, if he was your teacher um, um, no. at Yale. Um, but, and he was a complicated character. Yeah, one, one factor, Gail, that we haven't
2: mentioned, or at least I haven't mentioned, is economics. Um, there are wide range of of views on antitrust and whole range of of on labor unions, whole range of economic slash social issues that play a a role in this as well. Uh, it isn't just abortion, gun control, and so forth. Um, economic issues, as you well know, play a very determinative issue, uh, and I think that was true in the Bork cases. I recall I was I was gone by that time, but I remember there was a lot of focus on uh, articles and books he had written on these economic issues, which are as powerful for Democrats one way as they are for
1: Republicans the other way. That's fascinating because Bork truthfully wrote only one important article in constitutional law. Um, I used to I was a student and I actually thought, "My God, this is it. You know, where's the beef, so to speak? But, um, it was it was pretty thin. It was a, uh, i referred to it as an a little, an after dinner speech. It was a, um, a lecture that he gave in Indiana on um, uh, neutral principles and the First Amendment. It's maybe thirty five pages. That's actually the sum total, truthfully, of Bork's serious academic production in um, constitutional law at the time of his confirmation. And and when I and I took a class with him, I thought this guy actually. Hasn't done the reading. He doesn't know so much about this. And you know, I, was a, I was a second year student. What a pipsqueak, you know, um, what, how arrogant of me to think so. But that's what I did think. Then I clerked for Breyer, um, who was an antitrust professor at Harvard, um, more liberal antitrust professor. We get a big antitrust case. Um, and um, I, wanted, I'm, I'm, I want to be very helpful to him. He doesn't need my help. But I was such an eager little beaver. And so I went and read all the antitrust literature. And that's when I realized... Bork was actually a very substantial scholar, but his scholar wasn't in constitutional law. It was in antitrust. He wrote a whole series of articles in antitrust. He was hired at the Yale Law School basically to do law and economics of antitrust, and and he migrated into constitutional law because that's interesting. The book was called The Antitrust Paradox. Um, It's been massively influential um, uh, among uh, uh, law and economics uh, uh, scholars, especially of a conservative sort, um, and uh, on the bench. So, Gary, that's so interesting that you're focusing on that because that's actually – um, Bork's biggest um, intellectual footprint is actually, oh, 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 back then at least, um, before his, uh, his confirmation, um, um, he was a judge on the D.C. Circuit, the antitrust paradox. And here's what's also interesting, someone that, um, Andy, you and I like quite a lot, um, haven't asked Gary uh, his views, um, Senator Amy Klobuchar, a good friend of mine, her, her daughter, um, full disclosure, is actually my head TA this year, Abigail Bessler. She is interested in antitrust. Um, reviving maybe um, this tradition that Gary is mentioning of a focus on economics. She actually wrote her own book on antitrust. And I got to be straight with you. Not very many senators write serious books. Gary Hart is one of them. She's written a lot of serious books. And I give Amy Klobuchar a a lot of um, uh, credit and respect because she is a a workhorse and not a show horse. And she actually has serious substantive ideas about antitrust.
0: Just uh, getting back in one second, for, for just to finish up on the confirmation question. Um, when Donald Trump ran for president, he released a set of candidates for Supreme Court uh, positions that might open up under his uh, possible presidency, and he indeed did select from that from that list when the time came. Now that was a new practice i don't think any candidate that i can remember had done that um but uh, of course gary you ran for famously ran for president um and you didn't release such a list but had you given any thought to who if elected you might have nominated um no
2: <laughs> I, I i shouldn't be that categorical i'm sure i had discussion discussions with um friends and people whose judgment I trusted in and out of the law. And I'm sure names got bandied around, but I don't remember at any point during the nomination process uh, that becoming a fulcrum point um, to be discussed between former vice president
1: Mondale and myself. Uh, I, I just don't recall that. So, um, Andy, here's what that tells us, because this is really, that was a great question, tying everything together deep and structural. Gary was focused on economic challenges and a changing economy, a post-industrial economy, um, um, declining union membership and increasing uh, international competition and globalization You know, who's famously, you know, I I don't know he ever described himself this way, but people used to refer to him as an Atari Democrat. So he's very interested in, you know, the new economy and its opportunity, which is global um, and maybe not as uh, union focused as before, and its opportunities and challenges. Gary was also very interested in foreign policy issues, you know, as we were moving, you know, toward the end, we now see in retrospect of the Cold War and moving into a, you know, a new period, China on the rise and and, um, this at the Soviet Union um, uh, still uh, looming large. And, um, and so in that respect, Hart was a throwback in certain ways to Jack Kennedy, who is very focused on foreign policy. Is first his inaugural address is all about foreign policy, Kennedy's, um, and um, and so Gary Hart, you know, law trained, Yale Law School graduate, is focused a little bit less. On the Supreme Court, um, than on some of the other issues. Now, in the general election, it's possible that that the Supreme Court issue—you know—had he had he gotten the nomination, you know, he it might have focused him a, a, a little bit um, uh, more, but. I I did not know that. And that's really interesting to hear, Gary, that you really weren't focused on the court. And the court was less polarizing and polarized. It was not quite um, at the center of all constitutional conversations, even in the 80s, political conversations. I got a lot of questions
2: campaigning about cabinet appointees. I got few, if any, about Supreme Court Again, we're dealing with something that happened 30 or 40 years ago. So I, I can't say that questions were not raised at in university speeches and so forth about the court and confirmation and so
1: forth. But I don't remember it being um, central to the campaign. And you do remember other things as being central to the campaign. So you see, just hardens I say, "Well, you know, it's foggy memory." No, what do you remember, and what don't you? Because you know, you, you unless you tell me otherwise, you do remember, you know, your ideas about the new economy and globalization, and you know, oh, the sure. Democrat stuff, and and your ideas about foreign policy.
2: That's what people wanted to talk about, and I was responding to them, anticipating to a degree because it was clear in '84 and before and after that earthquake was happening in the United States, socially and economically, and, and it needed to be understood. It wasn't accidental. It was globalization. It was technology. It was the decline of the Cold War under Gorbachev uh, the, as, a, as a central focus of people's concerns. There was more a sense of of upheaval economically and socially and lack of understanding or framework for understanding South North migrations, another key factor, all of this fit together. And so you, as a candidate, you you both want to put your own ideas forward, but you also are obliged to respond to questions that people raise. And and you don't have to be campaigning very long before you begin to see patterns emerge, even from small groups hearing the same questions over and over and over again.
0: So it it seems to me in looking back on your campaign that the, the point at which the things that you were most concerned about and most knowledgeable about and had a lot of ideas about um, that intersected with those that area where the the public was very concerned and had a lot of questions about lay in those two areas in foreign policy and also in sort of the the economy of the future for uh for america and those two were intertwined as you say with globalization developments and so forth but you and you've stayed involved with foreign policy over the years um famously before the 2001 attacks. Um, you were involved with the uh, the commission that that uh, President Clinton appointed, um, and you were you know quite prophetic you know about that. Um, so I I'd like to talk a little bit of, to take advantage of your grand strategic uh, knowledge and insight to to give our audience some perspective on uh, something that's going on now, um, which is the the crisis that we're seeing in in Europe um, with. Ukraine uh, and Russia. Um, can you give us a little uh, background in terms of the way that you think about this, and where you might see issues even from your day uh, in the Senate, or, or you know, or beyond, uh, echoing today? And what what we need to really understand in order to understand what's going on around us today?
2: Looking back, after leaving the Senate in eighty six, uh, January of eighty seven. I uh, served on a number of commissions, the U.S. Commission on National Security for the 21st Century, which you mentioned. I was co-chairman with the late Senator from New Hampshire, Warren Rudman. Uh, I also participated in, either as a chair or a member, uh, a sequential number of those, those kinds of forums advising presidents, advising Congress on things as far ahead as we could look. And these were leading foreign policy, national security thinkers in all of these cases. And all you had to do, for example, on the issue of terrorism, was to see what was going on in the world. Our Navy ships were being attacked in the Persian Gulf and elsewhere. Embassies were being bombed. Um, The Cold War world where order was imposed by us and the Soviet Union was crumbling. And as power structures in various countries crumbled, they unleashed tribalism and um, radical nationalism and all the things we've seen since then, including, by the way, uh, here in our own country. So it was, it was as if for 30 or 40 years, the superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, kept the lid on. Now we had missile crises and so forth and so on. It wasn't all a walk in the woods, but um, we kept the lid on because it wasn't in the Soviets' interest or ours to let gangs and tribes uh, begin to take over. Supply chains, energy supplies, and so forth and so on could be disrupted. Communication systems, all of these things that sprang up from the collapse of the Soviet Union. We had the American era, such as it was, for 20 or 30 years after that, and now that, the common theme and the uh, intelligentsia is uh, that era is over, that we don't call all the shots. So when you get to Ukraine, you've got this mixture of territorial concern where the Russians are concerned that goes back centuries. The Russians have been concerned about the poor, their porous, massively extensive uh, borders, from Europe on the one side to Asia on the other. You've also got the energy issue. So the Europeans, NATO, um, rely on Russia for a lot of their petroleum supplies, as we know, and pipelines and so forth. So the the balance that we're struggling for is Russia's uh, territorial concerns, and the economics of energy. And it seems to me that's where the Ukrainian issue, the crossroads are. And uh, oddly enough, in the last 48 hours, the Ukrainian government has been saying to Washington, lighten up,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you're, you're, you're making this a bigger deal than it has to be. And we prefer to work out arrangements with the Russians. So we'll see.
0: Well, a couple of questions about that. You know, one thing that you, you said was the historic concern about, with Russia about their Western border, and that's certainly true. But what is their current concern about their Western border? Are they worried about being invaded by Ukraine? No, it's, uh,
2: <laughs> it, it, it's, it's the presence of a military uh, arrangement, NATO, Mm-hmm. on their borders,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, it's, and the presence of American troops all over Europe, and all of those things, it's, they're still rankled. The Russians are still rankled over the expansion of NATO, and they have a right to be because they were prom- made promises by the first Bush administration that were not kept by high-ranking officials, including the president himself.
0: So, do you feel that a solution to the problem lies in a reaffirmation of those promises?
2: I don't think you can just step in the same river twice. No, no, that was a lost opportunity. We lost credibility with the Russians, and I notice I'm I'm speaking of Russia in its historic capacity, <clears throat> not its Soviet capacity.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But this 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 paranoia, and it's real goes back four or five hundred years. Sweden invaded Russia, for heaven's sake.
0: Mm -hmm. Gustavo Adolphus, the Lion of the North. (laughs) Um, Yes, well, that's true. I mean, and of course, it plays politically for Putin, as well, whether or not there's, there is real concern, you know, the the, uh, the populace cares about it. As you said, you know, when you ran, you had to respond to what the populace cared about, not necessarily, you know, only what your own ideas were. So there there is, not that you're running for the president of Russia, but... Uh, <laughs> no. But yeah, that's something in common.
1: Um, and, and I, I, I don't
2: I think-, think, in the last, in our last session. I don't think I ever mentioned it. Maybe I did if I did shut me up. I had made arrangements, if elected in eighty eight, to invite Mikhail Gorbachev to attend the inaugural and be on the reviewing stand behind me.
0: Did not know that. What was your thinking in making that arrangement? What was your what was your purpose? That's
2: that's the end of the Cold War. Mm. I'd spent time with him We had developed a a relationship. I asked him subsequently, when he created something called Green Cross International, and I was part of that, we had a meeting in Geneva and I asked him, I'd never told him this, but I said, if I had been elected president, I was going to invite you to attend the inaugural in Washington, what would have been your response? He said, I would have been there
1: in a heartbeat.
0: Mm. He was ready. I did not know that. That's very, very interesting. Akil, you wanted to step in?
1: Oh, I was gonna two quick things. One, um, I, I think even at the uh toward the end of World War uh one, even there was a bit of a Polish incursion in um uh in into uh, uh Russia uh, when it was uh going through its its revolution, they're always worried about the stab in the back. I mean just as the Germans you know have been um symmetrically, but um, I remember as a sophomore in Yale College, I, I said, I think I'd been, we'd been assigned to read um, NSC 68, and mm-hmm. um, which is a classic Cold War document, and I was talking about basically um, Russian paranoia. And I think in class they said you know that they're they're even worried about the poles and and someone who knew a lot more a student a, a fellow student than I did said well the idea that the poles would ever you know attack Russia you know uh, is, is is absurd and 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 the guy knew a lot more about european history than I did truth but but, and I was a little pipsqueak. I, I was a freshman. I take it back. And and the professor, seeing that I was kind of crestfallen, said, "Well, actually, you know, at the end of World War One, that kind of happened, just to basically, you know, um, uh, make me feel a little bit better. But but also to contextualize um, Russia's, as Gary said, centuries long paranoia um, with all this again, pre pre Soviet. The second little thing that I was going to mention, since you're talking about you know the ending of one Cold War, but that the, the, the emergence of a different one, a domestic one, between the parties in the United States um, um, for our- in this Pax Americana, the idea, at least, the idea was a bipartisan foreign policy. You know, going all the way back to Vandenberg uh, um, and, um, and and the Democrats in um, in, the, in the 40s and, and 50s, or something. The Republicans had been historically isolationist or had a strong isolationist wing, and, um, and efforts to have a, a bipartisan foreign policy. Someone like Ike, who could have um, uh, run as either a Republican or a Democrat, um, and one. So just want to again remind our audience whereas today Nikki Haley is saying silly things about Biden resigning, all the rest. Gary Hart is on a commission. He's a Democrat, you know, with Warren Rudman, who's a Republican, kind of moderate Republican, you know, maybe a Jacob Javits like Republican today. Warren Rudman, just so everyone, just to connect the dots is a good friend of David Suter's, um, who's going to be on the court again, this kind of Yankee, Northern Republican, moderate type. Um, um, and we don't have those types anymore, except for maybe, you know, um, uh, Susan Collins, they've all become Democrats. You see in, in, in the Northeast, just as the conservative Democrats in the South have all become um, Republicans. So um, I think Rudman got like a citizen's medal uh, from uh, Bill Clinton. I'm not sure today you'd have that many presidents of one party giving um, uh, honors to uh, senators or former senators of the other party um, routinely.
0: Yeah, it's true that that this partisan you know, hyper-partisanship is, uh, affects many things that we took for granted. You know, before we talked about, you know, the less politicized confirmation process of the past, and uh, and now you're talking about the possibility of a greater politicization of foreign policy in terms of the conducting of foreign It's always an issue for the political campaigns. You know, it used to be that the Democrats, the Republicans, tried to paint the Democrats as weak on defense, you know, and, and that was a, a classic, uh, you know, uh, trope um and now we don't see that as much but politicians have to be concerned about the way the populace thinks about things um and they may not be as up to date And one of the things i'm trying to accomplish here is help our audience be more up to date because it's a tendency when we hear you know russia and ukraine and this to think of russia as expansionist in the way that it was after world war ii you know and we see that putin you know, has incur- had incursion into Crimea, taken over Crimea, and now we see, oh, well, now he we wants all of Ukraine. What's next? Um, is it your sense, Gary, that this is uh, not an expansionist Russia, but rather a, a concern about this, this area? Um, that, that it, or is this, if we were to, um, you know, have a diplomatic solution here, would that be considered a, a form of appeasement? That would that would weaken us uh, going forward.
2: It's impossible to know um, <laughs> where you sit depends on where you stand, as they used to say. Um, so different people will have. However, this dilemma works itself out, and I pray, as most people do, that it will be non-combative. But however it works itself out, everybody's going to put their own interpretation on it. I I have read enough Russian history spent enough time in Russia and talked to people there uh, to believe that this centuries old paranoia is still very deep in the in the Russian soul and so uh, that's part of what Putin is playing on and he's still he's still angry as a, much of the Russian leadership is about bringing NATO up to their borders. And this is this is part of that same struggle. So we'll wait and see. I
1: don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and just, Andy, just to complete the point on the other side, on the American side, I would say, you know, there was more continuity um, than division on Cold War issues after World War II, at least presidentially, you know, um, you had... Um, A Democrat, Truman, a Republican, Eisenhower, a Democrat, Jack Kennedy, another Democrat, Southern Democrat, Lyndon Johnson, a Republican, sort of um, Nixon, and then Ford, and then Reagan. I would say... On Cold War issues, um, uh, uh, H. W. Bush more continuity actually uh, among those presidents vis-a-vis our Cold War adversaries um, than um, wild um, seesawing and vacillation. Truth be told, and and some of the the more hawkish folks, um, you know, in that string of continuous presidents. Um, arguably, we're, we're, we're Democrats. Um Bob Dole referring to Democrat uh, Democrat wars, um, and um, and 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 Truman, you know, talked a pretty tough game. Uh, and and uh, and, uh, and uh, as Gary knows, because it's his generation, you know, Vietnam was uh, under a Democratic administrations. And of yes. course,
0: you had um, John F. Kennedy, you know, uh, accusing. Nixon uh, and you know Eisenhower and by proxy Nixon of of having this presiding over it's this bad. missile gap right with it's non-existent bad. you know and missile gap so what-
1: and Matsu and all of that stuff um, and just uh, since I mentioned Truman you know who was pretty tough um, I just want to remind our audience, because no president, Republican or Democrat today, would say anything like Jack Kennedy said in his inaugural, which also have this generational theme that Gary was trying to revive. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. Okay, and then he goes on. But then he says, um, let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and success of liberty. And my God, I can't imagine any president in an inaugural saying anything quite like that today.
0: Well, President uh, George W. Bush did say something like that in his second inaugural, um, the Bush Doctrine, if you will. He, he did say something very much like that. <laughs> okay. Um I didn't like it at the time, actually, but uh, but he did say something. But but of course I that was twenty years ago. As
1: white that, as un, as absolute, and um,
0: uh, cause, wow, well, he didn't have that. Ted Sorensen at the uh, at, you know, <laughs> so not quite as eloquent or. or but but anyway, this uh, you know gets to to questions. Actually,
1: I want to, to ask Gary just on that because um, um, Sorensen was a really fascinating guy. He came to law school um, um, uh, once, um, and we had dinner together. Gary, how much did you write yourself when you were actually in, in the Senate and running for president? And how much did you rely on speech writers? And how close was your relationship with your your speech writer or writers?
2: Well, I had some very talented people and. We remained friends years and years later. Um, I thought I was a better writer than any of them. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Probably true. Uh, uh,
2: I would get drafts. Uh, there were one or two speechwriter types on the staff, and they would reach out also to others not on the staff. But I would heavily edit any draft provided to me because I knew, I thought I knew a way, I had a way with words. Ted Sorensen, by the way, and I became very close friends after the 84 campaign. And he was, uh, he had agreed to be the chair of my uh, second campaign in 88. And wow. he, he, he was asked, and also one of the delegates to the 84 convention in San Francisco was Evelyn Lincoln, John Kennedy's pres, uh, personal secretary for twelve years, and I also became a very good friends with John Kennedy Jr. and still mourn his loss. Yeah,
0: you know, that's fascinating because I think that many of us looked at your campaign as as a uh, you know a, a revisiting of the of the Kennedy um, era, and uh, uh, I, and. I
2: I didn't have the money.
0: Well, fair enough. But I I don't think what I mean is not uh, in terms of what you represented um, to the country, potentially. Um, And now you're telling us that uh, perhaps the best and the brightest crew saw it as an opportunity to reunite behind you as well, some of them at least. Um, Yes.
1: I would love to hear, Andy and I, when we were pre-rehearsing this, just a little bit of um, caucusing about the things that we want to ask you, we really did want to ask you questions about how much you actually sought the, of course, you would run a, um, a, a presidential campaign at a particularly young age in, in 72 for a government, but, but how much you actually tried to reach out to earlier people who had um, actually run for president or had been very close to those who had run for president, for um, advice, endorsements, war stories, um, um, uh, support? You know, how much of that did you did you do? And then in turn, um, how much have later presidential uh, candidates approached you or not um, to, to, to get your input um, as they think about presidential run, have thought about presidential runs?
2: I don't remember making any conscious effort to um, get endorsements from or engage former key administration officials from Kennedy Johnson or anyone else for that matter. Um, I was a long shot in 84. And so until after, after New Hampshire, uh, I didn't have a lot of people knocking on my door. After New Hampshire, things began to change quite dramatically. And and your reverting to the McGovern thing still amazes me because I get stopped in airport, airport still, and people say, Aren't you Gary Hart? I say, Yes. I remember you from the McGovern campaign. And I say, uh, hello, two years later, I got elected to the Senate, and 10 years later, I ran for president myself. Oh, I know, I know, but you made such an impression, the McGovern campaign, I thought to myself, life goes on. Wow. I I think I'm the only, here I'm going to brag a bit, only person who played a more or less central role in a presidential campaign, and then um, was elected to statewide office two years later when that campaign was an electoral disaster, and then ran for president myself 10 years after that. I don't think it's ever happened before that I'm aware of. My favorite, Ted Sorensen, sorry. Ted always, throughout his life, got the question, did you, did you write the inaugural speech? And he got so tired of it. His answer got to be asked not.
0: Right. (laughs) So, um, you know, but talking about running for president, um, as you said in 84, you were a long shot, but I'm very interested in what the sort of the personal process, the, you know, the internal thinking is that, that, you know, has one believe that they could be elected president or would would take up this, uh, what might, might be looked at as an ordeal or what, what went into your mind in the process leading up to deciding to run for president? You know, what, what kind of a process did you go through? Was this something you always thought you would do? Did it, was it forced upon you? Was there, did you go through a, you know, a gradual uh, evolution? What happened?
2: I'll tell you what happened. Um, When I was reelected 80 against the Reagan landslide in a swing state uh, within months, certain, and maybe even weeks, when I went back to the Senate, I started getting invitations from people around the country who were running for governor, House seats, Senate seats, to come speak, because the theme uh, that I heard over and over again when I would go to Nebraska for Bob Carey, um, who was running for governor and then ended up in the Senate, or any of the others, people would stop me after the rally or the dinner, and. The theme I heard over and over again is about 84. We need new leadership. It was just over and over and over. And these were activists, activist Democrats lining up for mostly younger, newer candidates in their States. And um, I, I wouldn't say there was a groundswell for me personally, but what I did hear (laughs) <laughs> was um, that we need, we need new leadership. And, and the front runner was m- my friend, a late Walter Mondale, Fritz Mondale, a uh, very good friend, served on the church committee together. So they were, and he was the prohibitive favorite for the nomination a year or two before. And uh, people knew that. But our age wasn't that much different, five or 10 years. But he reminded people of uh, Hubert Humphrey and the Old New Deal. And they thought, I'll be a little um, risque here. I I had a coordinator, (laughs) very funny young man, graduate of the University of Texas Law School who was my coordinator in Texas. And we got to be very good friends, still are. And so I said to him one day, why everybody in Texas, all the big shots were lining up with Mondale. Why did you support me? He said, because you had the new BS. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I think about that, it makes me laugh.
0: And he was straight faced, you have the new BS. (laughs) <laughs> i I didn't know whether it was a compliment or not, so it became it it began to seem real to you that you that you would uh have a chance to be president and so forth but um you know you had you had been in the McGovern campaign, so you were you know behind at presidential campaigns before you know in that process did you did you start to did you think of this in terms of this I could do this this is something you know that I'm learning from this for my eventual you know run for president or
2: yeah, it was a it was a huge advantage. Keep in mind that uh, I wasn't the only uh, person lining up to run against Fritz Mondale, uh, Dick Gebhardt from Missouri, uh, I think Joe Biden. The whole a whole new generation of Democrats were.
1: Uh,
2: I was in that group, so it wasn't as if uh, just by being somewhat younger and appearing to be a a new generation, but I had a um, a free throw to be in the finals. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I knew there was going to be a contest and those, those those other new generation Democrats were out sensing what I was sensing that um, somebody younger, somebody newer and the, and my victory in, Colorado on 80, uh, had more of an impact in the party than I understood.
0: Mm-hmm. And you, last time you said that running for president, I, uh, just, you hinted at that it was, uh, incredibly grueling or difficult or, you know, stressful, something, something was hard about it. Um, in a way that, <laughs> it, that, that, that every, we, it wasn't something, it was everything. Well, tell us about it. What, what, what was it that was hard? And what what made it hard? Well,
2: first of all, first of all, it's it's a physical endeavor, and unless you are pretty healthy, and can survive on uh, only four four or five hours sleep or less, and uh, in with irregular diets and not always good food, <laughs> and. Rubber chicken. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well my the word got out that I like chocolate milkshakes. So it spread across the country more than you can imagine. It was not unusual to get off a plane in Des Moines, Iowa and be met with a by a twenty one year old car driver who handed me a chocolate milkshake. It's a wonder I didn't get to be three hundred pounds. Um fundraising. I had no money. I mean I personally had no money and I had no money in the bank. I had made one promise to my dear late wife when I first ran for the Senate. I said um, I will never we will never go into debt because she she had no idea what was what was ahead of her and I did. I said I promise you will never go into debt. And about A month or six weeks before the New Hampshire primary, I broke the promise and put a mortgage on our house in Washington. And that was what we had, $50,000 for advertising in the last three or four weeks in New Hampshire. And I won by 12 or 15 points.
0: And what about the, the sort of the stress of like you're constantly making political decisions day in and day out um you know in a in a this, i guess in a scenario where there isn 't really any blueprint to follow um did you find that you 're constantly trying to invent the wheel as you 're going through the campaign, and is that difficult or is it fun you know was there was there a, a compensatory you know positive side to all the stress and and physical toll no
2: no except when you won uh and I won this is also not well reported on, even at the time. I think I won 25 primaries and caucuses and Fritz won the other 25. And I mentioned last time that uh, trade played a much bigger role in that, the globalization that was beginning and so forth, changing nature of, of work. Um, but I had the distinct advantage of having been through it before with Senator McGovern. And so I knew what to expect and both the good and the bad. And uh, no one else in the race of the four or five who emerged early on. Keep in mind also that it wasn't just me and Fritz Mondale, the most admired man in America was running for the Democratic nomination, John Glenn. Mm. And uh, and I not only, <laughs> the night of the New Hampshire primary, which I knew was a huge turning point, I was as amazed that I defeated John Glenn as I was that I defeated Walter Mondale. I liked John a lot. I really, really did. He was a very very decent human being and everywhere in the world i mean when people the political press gave the nomination to mondale they always said they had a second paragraph of course john glenn is in the race and if anyone is going to challenge fritz mondale it will be john glenn and he dropped out shortly after new hampshire
0: would he have made a good president
2: he would have in the I think in the Eisenhower sense, um, he had clean, obviously had keen political instincts, or he wouldn't have got elected to the Senate in Ohio two or three times. But he was not a politician. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I meant that I mean that in an in, in a admiring sense.
1: Um, you, I was going to ask you a similar question. Do you know, um, because Glenn was a Democrat in what's now, you know, pretty r- reddish state, uh, uh, you know, although Scott Brown is of course a Senator from, from Ohio, but it, it really does tend to lean red back then. It was more swingy, um, perhaps as Colorado, you know, has been swinging. Um, I think of course, I think you mean Sher-
0: Sherrod Brown, right?
1: Uh, Sherrod Brown. Thank I'm. Uh, you. Thank you. Um, um, and, uh, uh, Um, Yale graduate, by the way, Um, uh, uh, but I think of another swingy state, Arizona, and another astronaut, um, uh, uh, Democrat, Scott Kelly. um, Do you know Senator Kelly, and have you thought about similarities and differences between him and Glenn? I don't know him. I wish I
2: would love to shake his hand and talk to him, but uh, our paths never cross.
0: Well, but but uh, Akil brings up an interesting point. You know, uh, you talked about the physical demands of the campaign. Um, there's some people have brought up the question about whether President Biden will run for re-election or not. One might think that the physical demands of the campaign might play into that. Um, but either way, the Democratic Party has to look to the future. And you, as a you know a, uh, a statesman of that party, um, who do you look at uh, among the party in terms of some of the future? leaders of the party and people that might eventually run, be their standard bearer for presidential elections?
2: Uh, I mentioned earlier the, the difficulty of knowing what was breaking in politics from 1500 miles away. But the same thing applies to answering that question. Um, There are rising stars in the house and the Senate and in governorships. And I read about them from time to time. I don't have any gambling (laughs) uh, system as to who might make it because I don't know them that well, but, um, they will, as we, as Joe will keep them on the sidelines till he decides what he's going to do. Sorry, president Biden. And, uh, I don't see any aspiring national candidate among all that emerging crowd that would want to take on a
1: sitting Democratic president. So let's keep it a little closer to home, since you said 1,500 miles. Um, uh, In your own home state of Colorado, um, which um, people aspiring to the governorship or – uh, the, the Senate, a Senate seat in Colorado in the past have have come to you, um, if any, um, seeking your um, advice or uh, endorsements about how about a Colorado race. Um, Again, yeah, not even for the future, but just in the past, have people kind of made the 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 the, the, the mecca to the, the no. Monticello of, of of Colorado to, to consult the sage the sage of Monticello, you know, of El Rancho.
2: Um, the answer is no, and I'm I'm fine with that. I'm look, I'm 85 years old, for heaven's sake. I don't feel it, but uh, I'm a, I'm a survivor of a different era. And there's an I mentioned our last session. There's an awful lot I used to in in the eighties. I think I knew as much about American politics as anyone in the country. I don't anymore. There's so much, it's so different now. And if I were somebody running, thinking about running for national office, uh, I'm not sure I would call somebody like me up, ask for advice, but I do, I want, I do want to mention three people and that, at the risk of forgetting to mention others. Michael Bennett, our senior senator, is a very, very good friend of mine, and he and I talk all the time. We have never talked about any national ambitions. He might have, but he is certainly well-qualified, and he is running for re-election. So things might change when he is re-elected. We have a sterling attorney general named Phil Weiser, uh, who was a Supreme Court clerk for two different uh, Supreme Court justices, and that tells you something about his credentials. He's uh, running for a second term as attorney general. It's widely believed he will make a statewide race. And then there is a, a less well-known star who is secretary of state. And she is on MSNBC all the time. And she is battling. she's the chair of the Jenna Griswold is her name. She is the chair of Democratic Secretaries of State. And so she is a rising star. And she is uh, taking the lead in fighting against voter suppression and all the nonsense that's going on on the Republican side. So she's, she's somebody to watch. And they're all in about the same age group.
0: Yeah, so you know, you mentioned Senator Bennett, and um, last week we covered the Senate debate on the filibuster, and we featured Senator Bennett. Um, and I think that this uh, clip that we had from him uh, kind of prompted Akil to to think about uh, the relationship between yourself and Senator Bennett, and and the the echoes uh, of of some. Uh, Gary Hart, wisdom uh, in what Senator Hart, uh, Senator Bennett had to say let me let me play this clip for you, and uh, I think Akil may want to ask you about it, and then I think we're going to wrap up unfortunately, but uh, here we go.
3: I want to be very clear that i don't want this place to turn into the House of Representatives't I, I think that would be a huge mistake and but it, it is not behaving the way that the founders designed it to behave. And the history, you know, admittedly is opaque, but it is very clear to me that the modern abuse of the filibuster represents very little in the way of traditional Senate practice or what the framers were considering. So I I can imagine finding ourselves to a place where we actually have extended debate, where we actually have a public filibuster like we used to have, everybody remembers the movie version of that, but they actually did that on the floor of the Senate versus the secret filibuster that acts as a, uh, a perpetual veto by the minority on the majority, something that the framers clearly uh, uh, were trying to avoid, um, and at the same time gives the minority the chance to hold the floor, persuade the American people of their point of view, amend legislation in ways that is unimaginable in the House, and then in the end gives the majority the chance to actually make a decision so we can effectively compete with countries all over the world that aren't held up by the kind of veto we're talking about. There's not a legislative body in the world that I'm aware of, except in, in any of the other countries with which we compete, that has a filibuster. So I'd say that other piece of this, the idea that we're going to seesaw back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, I think the reality is that's not what happens in other places that don't have a filibuster. And I believe we have the opportunity, if we're actually having a public debate, not sitting in our office or, you know, off fundraising, but instead having a public debate on the floor of this Senate, that the American people can actually begin to hold people here accountable again for their positions on healthcare or guns or whatever it is. We don't ever get the chance to do that here because we never even have a debate in the world's most deliberative body.
0: Okay.
1: And Andy, last week I heard that and you 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 curated it, you found that clip. I was hearing for the first time and I said, "Oh, I'm so proud of Mike Bennett, Michael Bennett, who was my student. Um, so mentioned Gary Hart's Yale law school class of 64. I'm Yale law school class of 84. I can't remember which year Michael Bennett is, but I was his teacher. So there's this uh, intergenerational, um, uh, uh, tradition here. And I was, um, uh, very um, inspired by Gary Hart, and then eventually we we wrote a piece on the filibuster together. And and I heard some of those themes, actually some Aquila Mar themes, truthfully, and Gary Hart themes in, in what Michael was saying. I said I don't know. Um, if he has ever spoken to, to Gary about this, but he's actually interpreting the framers in just the right way. They, they didn't have the same kind of filibuster practice that um, we have today, which is metastasized into something you know, grotesque and, and unrecognizable, more reminiscent of the gridlock of the Articles Confederation with supermajority rules than, um, than anything that the, that the framers contemplated. Um, that he actually welcomed um, open debate and an amendment and bipartisanship in a Gary Hart tradition, trying to go back to a Senate that Gary said actually did exist in in, in Gary's years um, um, in the, the, the Senate, he bemoaned that uh, senators are spending too much time dialing for dollars and um, raising money rather than actually engaging in the issues. And um, in classic Gary Hart fashion, he also actually talked about the rest of the world and how um, um, we have to be internationally competitive, not just economically, but actually um, in our political structures as well. And I said, you know, I can't be sure at all if he's ever even talked to Gary about any of these issues. I can't be sure if he actually Read what what Gary and I wrote about this, but wow, um, these seem to me to be truthfully Akil Amar and Gary Hart themes, and and I'm very proud of Michael Ben. Always have been. He's one of my best students ever. Um, his daughter recently, as I think I I bragged to the audience last week, um, was recently my student, and and that meant a lot to me that I had uh, two generations uh, in the Bennett family. Um, but Gary, um, you can now say, oh Akil, you're just hallucinating. There's nothing to all of that. Um, you yeah. and 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 that will be fair if. if if, if you say it, but we'd love to get your, your reactions to what Michael Bennett said.
2: Senator Bennett and I, I would say get together for a long lunch um, every two to three months and go over the Senate and the agenda, the policy agenda. But I'm going to add, in closing, I'm going to add one more dimension, generational dimension to your story. In the McGovern campaign, it's well known that any chance George had to win, and it was slim, went out the window when he had the problem with his selection for vice president. Eagleton. And uh, without going into all of that history, that was a week where Senator McGovern was trying to decide what to do He was in South Dakota with Frank Mankiewicz, my counterpart, and I was in Washington dealing with Senator uh, Eagleton's chief of staff. And we were trying to sort through how to get out of this dilemma with the mental health issues. And uh, we all know what happened afterwards. Uh, Senator Eagleton stepped down or out, and uh, Sergeant Shriver came in. But the the irony is that Senator Eagleton's chief of staff with whom I dealt in that intense week
1: was Michael Bennett's father. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. Did not know any of that. That is a great note on which to end. Inside baseball, our podcast audience are hearing stories that you know I think almost no one knows, and and we also promised our audience and you, Gary, that this this isn't just for the moment, but this is part of an historical record. someday a great biography is going to be written about you, and and we want this to be part of the archives.
0: I doubt it, but thank you. Well, I want to I want to thank you very much personally and uh, on behalf of our audience and Akil. But you know, just to close with a thought that you know, I remember as I said earlier, your campaign had a certain nostalgia for the the Kennedy campaign, and uh, nowadays I think we have a nostalgia for the uh, Gary Hart campaign. So uh, you know, let's hope that we can get back to the politics of uh, ideas, and integrity, and scholarship you know and and civic virtue which you've stood for so thank you so much
2: Amen, Amen. thank you